You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What are the actual insulin pump practices that lead to improved control? Joining us to discuss the latest outcomes for best insulin pump practices is physician assistant and diabetes clinical specialist at Advanced Metabolic Care and Research in Escondido, California, John Walsh. John, welcome to ReachMD. Steve, thank you. Well, tell us a little bit about the newest information on pump practices. I know it's come out of some several studies that have been completed recently. One of the biggest, um, kind of most comprehensive studies on pump practices is one that I did out of a uh, group of pumps, over a thousand pumps, that were turned in for a software upgrade. So they weren't problematic pumps, they were just what was being used out in the field. And I looked at how those pumps were actually being used. It's what I call the, the actual pump practices study. Traditionally, we've kind of thought, well, people in poor control aren't um, covering carbohydrates or they're missing boluses, that they're just not taking insulin. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that um, among pump patients, that's not true. There was no difference in the number of carb boluses taken per day. There was no difference in the number of grams of carbohydrate entered into the pump. Um, something like uh, over 92% of these pump users were using the bolus calculator to calculate both carb and correction doses. So the data was quite good. One of the wonderful things about pumps is that you can pull out exactly how insulin is being used. So a clinician can see, you know, whether the pumper's taking insulin. Uh, you can see how much insulin, and you've got the glucose record in most pumps tied into the pump. So you've got a wonderful database. Yeah, let me just jump in there and, and explain to our listeners what the bolus calculator is, just in case you don't know. But a patient will program his or her pump to give one unit for, for example, 10 grams of carbohydrates, depending on the patient's history, or one unit for every 50 milligrams over their desired goal. So that's what we call their correction. And when patients input a number or carbohydrates, the pump gives them the exact calculation to make uh, insulin dosing very objective. You're exactly right. Um, a pump user simply puts in the grams of carb, the, the current glucose comes in typically from a meter automatically, and then um, the pump also tracks the bolus insulin on board, so the amount of insulin that's still lowering the glucose from a previous dose. So it has a lot of forgiveness in it that you just can't get on injections. Yeah, and you have you have to assume that your correction factor and your insulin per carbohydrate ratio is correct, but of course, that's where uh, frequent blood glucose comes in. Is there a relationship between glucose control and number of glucose tests per day? What I did was I took um, about 400 of the pumps that had over 95% of their glucoses coming directly from a meter, so there was no question about what the glucose values were. Mm-hmm. And 
Uh, I split that group into three tertiles, so a better control, a mid-control, and a worse control group. The best control uh, averaged 144 milligram per deciliter on their glucose, while the worst control was uh, 227, and the middle was in between. Turned out, the best control group was testing 4.7 times a day, which is, you know, pretty good frequency. We'd like to see more than that, but not bad on average. But what was interesting was that the worst control group was testing um, four times a day. It was statistically significant, but it had a very weak relationship with the glucose. Yeah, I mean, four and 4.7, that's not, that's not too different in my book. Exactly. And what really popped out to me was that it's not the traditional things that we're thinking about. It's not that they're missing boluses, that they're not doing carb counting correctly, that they're uh, not taking insulin. The, the, the worst control group was actually taking more insulin than the best control group. That's interesting. And what popped out to me was that they don't have an insulin deficit, but they have a relative insulin deficit. Well, they're not getting enough for their need despite the fact that they're taking more insulin. Well, I think, John, one of the things that I think came out of your study was this whole concept of the total daily dose, what percent's going to be basal, what's bolus, what's correction, and we're going to get into that in one second because I think that relates to therapy. Whether you're using people on pumps or MDI, I think our listeners would like to know what kind of ratio to expect in patients with type 1 uh, trying to achieve good control. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Steve Edelman. I'm spending time with my good friend and colleague, Dr. John Walsh. We are discussing best insulin pump practices. Well, John, let's, let's talk about the total daily dose. And our listeners, I think, would be interested in what, what kind of ratio should we expect in our type 1s and maybe some of our type 2s on multiple daily injection regimens or pumps. Yeah, one of the main reasons I conducted this study was to find out what's the best way to give insulin. We traditionally think of uh, basal insulin or background insulin uh, as keeping the glucose flat when you're fasting overnight, uh, when you're not eating carbohydrate, when you skip a meal. So that dose is very critical to keep the glucose uh, steady when uh, you're not eating. Then on top of that, you take boluses or spurts of insulin for um, carbohydrate or for an elevated glucose. And it turned out that the background insulin was 48% of the TDD, and that's been replicated in multiple studies, uh, both on injections and with pumps. So when you look at the TDD, you want about half of all the insulin being given as the long-acting or as the basal insulin. So that sets the background. Then in the best-controlled uh, tertile, what um, was interesting was the carb boluses made up 43% of the dose. So the basal was a little more than the carb insulin, and then another 9% was used to correct elevated glucose levels. So the corrections needed were almost as frequent in the best control as opposed to the worst control, uh, but the, the worst control group was simply using more for corrections. I think in the literature, everyone's always talking about 50-50, you know, about 50% basal, 50% bolus. Now, you know, I, I know that that holds true in type 1s. Um, 
Is it fair to say that if you had a type 2 diabetic on a multiple daily injection regimen that you should expect the same ratio? In general, the, the, um, you're absolutely correct. When, uh, in clinical practice, when you're working with people with, people with type 2 who are on insulin, if it's an early case where the beta cells are still producing insulin, you can get by with sometimes with just a basal delivery. You may, may be able to just give them Lantus or Levomir and have them get really good control in it. But um, gradually they lose, they lose production, and then you have to shift to an MDI type of system. And there, when you get into that, then you're looking at a 50-50 split or a 50-40-10 split. Yeah, and I think I think you said it just right. If a type 2 is beta cell exhausted, it's going to be 50-50. But if you get folks on that may have some of their own endogenous secretion, and if they're on other oral agents, then I think the 50-50 isn't written in stone. Today we've got excellent oral agents. The world for type 2 is really uh, interesting. And, and, and changing quite a bit. We, the, the, the number of drugs uh, for type 2 seems to be increasing, which, which is good. We need a big, bigger toolbox, and it's also good because they need specialists to help them go through the maze of new therapies. John, let's talk about carbohydrates because, you know, so much of what we do in type 1 is based on carbohydrate counting. Um, and, you know, you mentioned carbohydrate bolusing. I mean, I've always brought up the issue that, you know, protein is also has calories. And if I eat a handful of peanuts, which is protein, you know, it's like two, 300 calories, I need to take insulin for that. So, I mean, I, I kind of like the concept of using the insulin to calorie ratio versus just carb and then how that relates to our pump settings. You know, protein, about half of the um, protein converts uh, over, slowly over time, usually over several hours, into carbohydrate. So one of the advantages of pump is that you can give a uh, combo bolus where you give some now and some over time, or you can give a, an extended bolus where you give all of it over a period of time. Mm -hmm. So for covering protein, a pump has big advantages. Uh, I know when I have a large steak for uh, dinner, I've got to use a temp basal increase overnight to cover that protein converting to glucose in order to end up with a good glucose in the morning. Got it. So protein does need to be covered. Most meals aren't that heavy in protein for most people, but it is one of the things that somebody with diabetes has to consider. Let's talk about um, finding tools to improve you know, looking at looking at our patient's total daily dose and how we can improve the A1C. Because the TDD is directly tied to the average glucose, um, I've developed some calculations for converting the glucose into an optimized TDD or an ideal TDD. It's what I call an ITDD. In other words, you can take the excess in the correction doses that a person's using and translate that into a higher TDD or when somebody's using multiple injection, uh, multiple correction boluses per day, their TDD is actually higher than it would be if they weren't, so that that TDD can be used to determine new pump settings. Or you can simply use my formula and get, get an optimized 
um, ideal TDD. I want to give the audience the best resource, which quite frankly is your book, Pumping Insulin, which is the Bible for people interested in pump therapy. I'd like to thank our guest, physician assistant and diabetes clinical specialist at Advanced Metabolic Care and Research in Escondido, California, John Walsh. John, thanks so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, to help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.